Hello, welcome to the Captain Employed Podcast. Joining me in conversation for this episode was Richard Simmons from Derby Street Managers. In this episode, Richard gives an overview of the two funds he manages and the type of companies he likes to invest in. He also talks about two high-quality stocks he feels have great long-term potential. Richard is the author of the book Buffett Step by Step, published by the Financial Times back in 1999. He has decades of experience as an investment manager with a great track record. So it was a real pleasure to have him on the podcast. Without further rambling from me, please enjoy my conversation with Richard. Hi Richard, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Great, thank you so much. Nice to speak to you. Can you tell us who and what is Derby Street Managers? Sure. So I started... uh investing professionally in 2001. Uh, I'd been investing for myself and for a friend or two uh, in a few years before that. And uh, in 2001, I became uh, authorized and took on my first uh, professional clients. And that was in managed accounts. And uh, I added um, the two Derby Street funds, launched those funds in the Cayman Islands in 2013. So Derby Street collectively is the collection of managed accounts and these two funds, which are UK equities and European equities, collectively with assets under management of around $45 million. And what type of industries and companies do you invest in? So to start with a slightly negative answer to that question, we are less interested in certain sorts of industries and, and companies. One of the negative tests is leverage. So we're not terribly interested in companies with high leverage for probably obvious reasons. And we don't like low-return businesses, which sounds obvious, but I'll, I'll talk a bit more about that uh, in a bit. So we haven't uh, really invested in primary, primary industries, steel, oil, uh, mining, primary agriculture, and that sort of thing. And also we're not interested in, generally speaking, there's always exceptions to look at, but we're not interested in very wide open businesses with low barriers to entry. Uh, so we don't do much with restaurants, hotels and other uh, industries with high um, capital expenditure requirements. Uh, on the other side of that, we do like businesses with lots of cash. Cash doesn't tend to be reflected very well in market prices, we find. And of course, having cash gives you much more stability. It gives you optionality to invest in other businesses, for, for those companies to invest in, in other businesses when the time is right. And cash has proved almost uh, priceless in a crisis like the current one. So we like businesses with cash and we like high return bus- businesses. Surprise, surprise, businesses with high returns tend to lead to high shareholder returns. Another way of looking at it is, is I think, is to say that we're forward-looking investors, which may sound obvious, but I think a lot of what is called value, traditional value investing, is quite backwards looking, tends to look at the assets of the business um, only or um, fairly raw valuation metrics, which tend to promote um, more traditional businesses. And we prefer to invest in companies that are looking more to the future. One trend I noticed looking back at some of our biggest successes is is that some of these businesses are not technology companies per se, but they were businesses that were able to employ technology 
to give them a distinct competitive advantage. Um, and three examples I picked out were Domino's Pizza, which is the UK and Ireland master franchise holder, Paddy Power, which is now Flutter, and Ryanair. Uh, all businesses were held for many, many years. All of them used the advances in information technology, particularly over the internet. But before that, on you know, managing telephone systems as well, really to steal a march over their slower-footed rivals, the the incumbent airlines or the um, high street bookies and so on. Uh, another industry that we've done well in that we like is asset management, where again there tends to be plenty of cash or other investments that are not well reflected sometimes in the market prices. They have high returns on capital very often. Um, there's operational leverage, so as- asset management tends to scale very well if you're do- if you're doing it well. And uh, <laughs> this uh, buzzword at the moment, TAM, the total addressable market, that lots of people are going crazy for. Of course, asset management has a very high, um, very big market. Is it mainly UK and European companies you focus on? Yeah. So these two funds, there's one called Derby Street UK Equities, one called Derby Street European Equities. The UK fund is investing in UK businesses, all of which are quoted in the UK. The European fund can invest in any European market that tends to be Euro-flavoured businesses. So they could be they could be quoted in um, the UK, but they they're often quoted in European markets. And what size of market cap do you focus on? So there's no aim. We can invest anywhere. Tends to be more value around at the lower end as a generalization. But in the European fund, we have a couple of very big companies, Louis Vuitton and Kering, which are two large cap luxury goods or fashion companies. I'm sure you know them. Kering is the company that owns Gucci. But we have um, companies as small as uh, 100 million euros or 50 million pounds sometimes. As the funds grow, of course, it's more difficult to look at very small companies. Our funds are small enough that we can look at small cap as well, yes. And can you talk us through two companies in your portfolios that you feel have a real long-term growth outlook? Sure. So the, the largest position in the UK fund is a business called Naked Wines. So um, for listeners who don't know them, there was a a a fairly famous business in the UK called Majestic Wine, which is and was a wine retailer, meaning it owned shops, which are actually warehouses. And it was a fairly good model in its day because these were larger shops that were able to offer wine at a discount. Something for those who know the UK, something like Argos would have been compared to a regular high street shop. And Majestic intelligently bought a nascent business, I guess about 10 years ago, called Naked Wines. Ultimately, last year, or actually two years ago now, Majestic ended up selling its high street business to private equity just just at the right time and reinvesting simply in this um, Naked Wines business and then renaming itself Naked Wines. So the business that we own is called Naked Wines, and it is now online only. And Naked Wines has uh, three geographical markets, the UK, Australia, and America. And America is now its largest market. 
it sells wine at good prices, online only. It also has a number of subscribers. Uh, so a subscriber is someone who puts in monthly, uh, money uh, regularly, maybe monthly, puts money in upfront and achieves greater discounts and also exclusive offers. And this business, the subscription business, is growing fast. It was already growing fast before the pandemic. Pandemic has accelerated that growth. In terms of the thesis, it's fairly simple. We, you know, we think it's got an opportunity to be multiple times larger than it is today. The valuation is slightly more complicated than the normal situation that we might look at, which is probably why the value is there in our view. We bought it in in the pandemic at the, at the beginning of the trouble. So the price is somewhat up now, but at the, at the point that we bought it, the, the business as a whole, the company as a whole was not profitable. It was break even. But really, you have to break that into two pieces. There's um, a whole series of aggressive marketing offers, typically vouchers, that Naked Wines offers to its first-time subscribers. And that means you can buy a case of wine at a, a heavily discounted price, which will lead to a loss on that first order. And then a certain proportion of those first-time customers become subscribers. And when they become subscribers, of course, they, they become profitable. And the profit on from those subscribers pays off cost of the first-time discount fairly rapidly, certainly within the first year and a half. So if you if you take the marketing cost as a sunk cost and look at purely the profit from the ongoing subscription business, as long as you're modeling the the actual lifetime value properly, we pay and you take away the cash in the business, we paid only about eleven times taxed operating profit of the ongoing subscription business. You can challenge that and ask many questions and look at it in different ways, but we thought that was a very, very good price for a business that has uh, negative working capital. The customers are paying up front, so the cash is flowing in faster than profits, and that cash can be reinvested in marketing. And where the opportunity to grow could be, this is our guess, but it could be 10, 15, or even 20 times bigger as a business in X year's time. And that will clearly, with with operating leverage, lead to a far, far more profitable company than it is today. Uh, So that that has become, through cost and through profit, uh, the biggest constituent of the UK fund. It's about uh, 11% of the fund today. Can you tell us about your second company that you're really optimistic about? So as a more traditional sector which we also bought only in this um, pandemic and really more of a valuation first approach I suppose we bought two companies one in the UK and one in France in the employment agency market the UK business is called Robert Walters the French business is called Synergy Synergy S-Y-N-E-R-G-I-E they're fairly similar businesses they're both run by and controlled by their founders, a Frenchman at uh, Synergy and an Englishman at um, Robert, Robert Walters. You probably know out in um, Bangkok, John, because it's uh, it's quite big in Asia. Uh, an employment agent specialising in um, you know industrial and financial 
services, similar with Synergy. They're both international businesses with many different markets. They've both been going, I suppose, 30, 40 years. Why did we like them? Again, they had enormous quantities of cash. When the pandemic hit the markets in, I guess, the first quarter of last year, businesses with cash, the cash was really not credited by the market. So in each case, at the time we bought them, cash on the balance sheet, and the synergy is a slightly more complicated story because it has cash, but it also has tax credits from the French government, which are quasi-cash. That to one side. The cash on the balance sheet net of any debt, each case accounted for around 40 to 50% of the market cap. That really wasn't very well reflected by the market. And then secondly, of course, you had what we hoped and expected to be temporary effects on the operating profits of the business because employment agency income is clearly going to be hit at a time of high unemployment. And that has indeed turned out to be the case. But both of these businesses have been through crises before, notably the the Lehman recession, which was uh, 12, 12 or 13 years ago now. We were able to see how they did in the previous crisis. And what's notable, well, one of the notable things about this industry, because most of the costs are people, and some of those costs are discretionary because they're bonuses, they tend not to, as companies, fall into losses when there's a sudden contraction in demand. And that indeed has turned out to be the case. Moreover, they've both managed to generate cash, significant amounts of cash. So that large amount of cash has actually grown during the lockdowns, which is really remarkable when you think about it. So we had businesses that were trading somewhere around three to five times taxed operating profit again, net of the cash. Given that these are businesses that have grown steadily over three decades or more at a sort of, let's say, 10% compounded earnings rate, for that sort of business to be trading at three times or four times taxed EBIT, net of cash is really remarkable. So we made um, fairly significant um, investments in those two businesses in the first, principally in the first two quarters of, of last year. Thanks for sharing those two companies. One thing we failed to mention so far is you wrote a book, I believe, called Buffett Step by Step, published back in 1999. Is that correct? Yeah. uh, So very briefly in the prehistory, I was a banker for about 12 years and then fell out of banking and didn't quite know what to do. But I became enamored of Buffett, like a lot of uh, value investors do. And, And my way of understanding Buffett was to write a book. There weren't quite as many books about him then as there are now. So the Financial Times company, Longman and Pearson and so on, they they picked up this idea and they commissioned a book from me. And that was a somewhat academic textbook called Buffett Step by Step. That's right. And what books are you currently uh, reading or have recently read? Well, I was a big fiction reader uh, until the last few years and something about <laughs> something about the world we're in has, has drawn me into non-fiction more. The last big fiction book I read was Moby Dick, but in, in the non-fiction, um, I really recommend uh, The Hair with Amber Eyes. I think that's a wonderful panoramic view of um, a period of history seen through 
a family and seen through some some objects. At the beginning of the pandemic, I read um, Pale Rider, which is about the Spanish flu of 100 years ago. And that certainly gave me perspective, particularly in terms of what might happen after a pandemic and how quickly things might return to normal. If you think about it, the Spanish flu is all but forgotten now. And that was a massive uh, shock at the time. So that was useful. And right now I'm reading um, another history book called The Birth of the Modern. It's by Paul Johnson. And it's a, a history of the world just between 1815 and 1830. There's chapters on diplomacy, the Congress of Vienna, the worldwide movement to abolish slavery and piracy as well, which is about what it meant to become a world policeman, to have all sort of world standards. And there's quite a lot about technology as well. So that's, that's also a useful long, long-term long perspective. That's great. Um, we're just coming up to time now. So if listeners wanted to find out more about you and Derby Street Investments, where can they go to? Uh, we have a website. It's called derbystreetmanagers.com, derbystreetmanagers.com, one word, and they can sign up for our fact sheets and wonderful um, shareholder letter, uh, which come out quarterly. Okay, that's great. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Richard, for coming on. Um, I'll have to get you back on again because I've I've added both those uh, shares to my watch list. (laughs) (laughs) That's great, John. It's very nice to speak to you and thank you so much for the opportunity.